Hey, podcast friends, it's Roy. Um, I just wanted to give you a little background on this podcast. Um, The original audio for this podcast got deleted, so thankfully I saved it on a second audio file, but the second audio file is a little bit crazy to understand and to listen to, but I apologize, but I couldn't let this podcast go unaired. Um, It is with Michael Kaz, who is a fantastic orchestrator, conductor, musician, um, he started, he got some work at uh, French Woods Camp for the Performing Arts, where I now do some work. And I got to meet him last year while he was conducting our orchestra um, for our Pops Night. And it was fantastic. He did a lot of the works from Alan Menken. He's also Alan Menken's music director. And you will also hear in this podcast, he talks a little bit about Beauty and the Beast that just opened and other works of Alan Menken and things that are currently on Broadway or have been on Broadway and um, how he has conducted film scores and so many different things. So I hope that you enjoy this podcast. It was a blast to interview him. And again, I apologize for the audio, but I'm so excited for you to hear this. So sit back, relax, or whatever it is that you're doing, just take a listen to Michael Kaz and I as we interview, as I interview him and uh, we talk about Disney, to his career, to Frenchwoods, to advice to young professionals. Thanks for listening, everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye. So how are you, sir? I know that you're busy and Beauty and the Beast just opened all over the place and was a huge hit. So how are you doing after all of that craziness? Well, I'm pretty excited. Um, you know, I uh, uh, got some, was lucky enough to get some pretty good billing on this one. Uh, my name is up front and so uh, I've been getting a lot of attention. I've been getting, it's been fun. I've been getting some uh, um you know, Facebook uh, um, messages and emails uh, from folks that I haven't heard from in many, many, many years, <laughs> uh, like my childhood. Um, they just kind of see my name and recognize it from the old days. And uh, so it's been kind of interesting and fun to hear from people from so long ago. But uh, everybody seems to be seeing the film, which is it's great. You know, it's great to do work and then and then folks uh, see it, appreciate it. And uh, this is just one of those films that's kind of building and building. That's awesome. So let's talk about your start in musical theater, music directing, composing, scoring. Where did you start all of this? Um, well, you know, I grew up um, just outside of New York City on Long Island, and my Parents um, were always into theater and always uh, and into music as well. You know, I come from a musical family from many, many generations back. You know, my uh, a topic for a different conversation. But my great grandfather Harry Cosserin was known as the father of Brazilian jazz. Um, wow. So, uh, and he actually invented and he actually invented the drum kit, if you can believe that, um, my great-grandfather. So um, my musical roots go way, way, way back. Um, uh, 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 and so my parents, uh, you know, took me into theater. So, um, you know, I am I was very, very young, but uh, I was, I'm actually old enough to have been taken to see uh, the original production of Zero Marcel doing Fiddler on the Roof back in the mid-60s. Yeah, I I loved it so much. It took me two more times. It's once more with Zero and once with Herschel Bernardi. 
uh, I remember very well. And, uh, you know, Paul Sands' storybook theater. And, um, you know, uh, just I remember seeing theater um, long, long, from a long, long time back. Um, and uh, I remember taking my... Uh, the junior prom in my high school, uh, I remember taking my date to go see the chorus line, which had just opened. It was brand new. And I remember seeing, you know, such an incredibly affecting performance. Um, and I remember, you know, it piqued my interest. You know, it just seemed like something that um, I was very, very interested in. And, um, a couple of years before that, uh, um, and I was probably, hmm, I would have been either eighth or ninth grade. I remember that um, I got a call from the high school, which was attached to the junior high school in Wontaw, New York, where I was attending school. And um, they had kind of heard about me uh, there. And um, their music director, you know, a kid <laughs> in high school, um, uh, had fallen ill and was supposed to do um, Oliver uh, in, uh, for a high school show, and they wanted to know how to come in and read the book and and, uh, and finish music directing the show and and uh, and play it for them, which I did. So that was literally the first show that I ever 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 did. That's um, and I, you know I, I, I yeah <laughs> so that was. The first one, and uh, even in summer camp, you know, I was interested in in musical theater and um, uh, played a bit, but mostly actually active. Uh, uh, I can't even begin to remember how awful I must have been. But you know, I could read music obviously very well. Had a decent uh, little voice, and, and uh, probably was a terrible actor, I imagine. But uh, you know, I did. You know, Charlie Brown, and you're a good man, Charlie Brown, and, and Candide and Candide, and, you know, did a bunch of these, bunch of these things. So I was interested in theater from a very, very early age. Wow. I had no and idea first, you were um, uh, And that, yeah, it was always, it's always been a great passion of mine. Um, and then, as I think you know, I... I got hired um, by uh, French Woods Festival of Performing Arts, uh, um, and that would have been in 1977, I believe, was my first year there. I'm pretty sure that was it. Was, yeah, 77. Um, and uh, it was a great launching pad in terms of getting me in front of orchestras. At that point, I really had not done much. Uh, I did a little bit in the uh, uh, junior high school and high school, you know, the the band directors would put me in front of the band occasionally just to try stuff out and you know, I was interested in it. So I just kind of cut my teeth a little bit on that. But French Woods let me get in front of, you know, they had, uh, as they still do, full-size orchestras, you know, 20-some-odd uh, combination mixture of kids and, and counselors uh, and sounded really good. <laughs> uh, um, and it still does. And, and uh, um, I was able to music direct any number of shows in a given summer. Um, and uh, so I learned, um, I learned a lot of the, uh, about the shows. You know, we did some Gilbert and Sullivan. We did Rogers Hammerstein. Uh, we did 
um, you know, a lot of classic shows. Uh, I guess less classic then, but certainly classic in, in retrospect. Um, but uh, it kind of let me cut my teeth on on seeing how an orchestra would react to things. And, you know, if you do this, they, they, you know, conducting is, I would say, is kind of like driving a car. You can study how to drive a car for a thousand years, but until you get behind the wheel, you actually have no idea um, what it is. Yeah, that's so true. Oh, it's so true. Now, a hat tip to Frenchwoods. That's where I got to meet you was last year. Every year they have, uh, oh gosh, now I can't remember what it's called, a Pops concert. The New York Pops? And we partner with... Yeah, our theme was Disney this year, right? Yeah, our theme was Disney this year, and you came in and conducted the orchestra, and it was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Well, it wasn't a partner. Thank you. It wasn't a partner with Disney. Um, I kind of brought that in. And what it was was, uh, you know, the the uh, music director at the New York Pops, Steve Barnett, couldn't make it in this year for personal reasons, I believe, and. So, uh, because of my natural connection with both Broadway and, you know, with the old days at French Woods, I think I got a call from them. Um, and and uh, it was my idea, you know, when I was asked to do a Pops concert, to bring in not, not really Disney, but Alan Menken, because, um, as you know, I've been in Alan's music director and arranger for the last 25 years now, and I figured it would be a nice connection to bring in um, his stuff and celebrate... Uh, his writing um, as his music director uh, for this concert. So I, I bought in all of the um, Alan Minkin material. And I think that once we got that, I think they wanted to do, you know, a little bit of general Disney celebration as well. But that's how that happened. It wasn't, you know, Disney was not actually connected with the Frenchwoods concert in any way other than other than my connection. That's so cool. That we, it was a blast. It was so much fun. We had... Um our uh, cab troupe sang and a couple of our campers sang as well as Carrie Butler. We had a couple other people that came and sang and it was just so much fun to uh, watch the counselors who are grown adults just turn into kids with this music that we grew up on. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I had an idea um, you know, because of the film connection, I, I think that's something that had been ever tried there at Brentwood's you know, a lot of what I've done besides the theater stuff uh, for the last, um, you know, however many years it's been, has been um, uh, film work, you know, uh, uh, largely through Alan, but with other composers as well. And um, the very, very first film cue that I conducted was uh, Pocahontas. And I decided to bring that film clip in and uh, project it while the French Woods uh, Orchestra played under my baton to kind of recreate what that was like for the very first film here. A lot of fun. Yes. And they did very well. It's not hard to, it's not easy to follow when it's um, what's called a free time cue where there's no clicks and they did a great job. That's insane. Now, I got to see it live and it was incredible, but uh, I'm just so curious what it was like for you when you first did it. Because I remember the first time being in front of an orchestra conducting, and I was like, oh, God, I hope this goes well. But this is like a film, and you're watching not only your music, but the TV. Like, how? what was that like for you? So um, I'm, so this goes back... Um, you know, uh, this goes back to when I... When, when and how I met Alan. 
um, how I got into this film queue. Um, I had been um, working on Broadway since 1982, um, and in it was either late 92, 10 years later, or maybe early 93, um, I got a call from um, a friend of mine named Danny Trube, who we recognize as the uh, one of the great genius orchestrators of uh, Broadway in the last century, um, and uh, still working, of course, and still a genius, and uh, we have been friends and have been friends, and um, uh, uh, at that time, uh, Alan, um, Alan's longtime music director, David Friedman, had decided he wanted to kind of break out and go out on his own as a composer, and he wasn't going to do this brand new Beauty and the Beast stage production for Broadway that was coming up, and Danny suggested me to Alan, and um, kind of the rest is history, as I say, I guess, but I, uh, Danny arranged it, and I went in and met with Alan, and it went well, and here we are. Um, but uh, Danny was working on Pocahontas, and at some point, and for some reason, and it wasn't David, it was somebody else, but they had lost their um, conductor on the film, and so it had fallen to Danny to conduct it. And um, so a little background, there are two kinds basically a film cues that are done. Uh, one is the clicked film cue where the conductor and a number of musicians are wearing headphones where you hear the actual metronome be clicked out for you. Um, and that is uh, that has become kind of very, very prevalent these days. But in those days, it was less so. Um, and then you have um, the other kind of cue, which is a free time cue in which there are no clicks whatsoever and the time changes around. It's very rubato or can be very rubato, I guess. And um, much more difficult to do, uh, but much more fun and fulfilling for a conductor because you really can bend the music around and make it work. And it's uh, very, very exciting to uh, to make the orchestra go with you to create, um, you know, what's going to be up there on the screen. Uh, but you have all these... Um, uh, tools with which to work, as I found out at that time. And uh, you have what are called streamers, which are these vertical lines that go across the screen in two-second um, intervals. And um, you work with the music editor to uh, create those streamers, at the end of which are what are called punches, these visual representations on the screen, a little flash, let you know that there is your hit. And you uh, use those um, to get yourself through this queue. Um, and the last queue of Pocahontas is this, you know, usually three-time queues are on the shorter side, which are difficult to do. Um, this was, as Danny put it, the mother of all three-time queues. It was, I think, four and a half minutes, maybe five minutes, something like that, you know, an incredibly long three-time queue um, that we were going to do all at once. And very complicated because it, it, was not really rubato, but it had these huge accelerandos in them, and you had her land very, very precisely through it. Um, hard to do. And um, so when I got this, I remember sitting down, and I studied um, seven hours. I basically memorized the entire cue because I'd never done it before. I wasn't sure how I'd be able to look at the orchestra and look down at the score and follow all of these instructions that I've written to myself. And so I basically uh, memorized every note of it. Wow. Um, 
And uh, in fact, when I did with Runch, which I still, from that many years ago, I still remembered it so well. I barely looked through the music bank, but worked so hard. These days, um, had I been handed that cue, I probably would have studied it for 20 minutes uh, because you know, I've done so many since then. And in fact, I worked with uh, a composer uh, named Rachel Fortman for a number of years. Uh, we might know she's one of some Oscars. Um, uh, Cider House Rules, uh, Emma, you know, very celebrated composer. And she's interesting. She's very, very old school. She never, ever, ever, and I mean ever, used this clip it's all three times. So I've got, gotten pretty good at it in the intervening years. But so back to that time, uh, I, it was, I don't get nervous when I conduct. That was maybe the closest I've ever gotten to being nervous <laughs> because there's a lot of people in the room watching and seeing how I would do, but luckily it went very well, and I kind of nailed it first time, I guess. And uh, uh, it, it was uh, it was very, very satisfying, a lot of fun, and kind of the beginning of a lot of fun times in the studio with big orchestras for the films. That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. Now, how is scoring for, I mean, I you can hear the difference, but in terms of putting it on paper and things like that, how is it different to score for Broadway as opposed to a movie? Um, well, things that change for films, um, really these days since, um, kind of the, the bigger scores, the bigger melodic scores that were done, you know, the eighties, we still had very, very, very melodic scores. Um, and, you know, think about John Williams, for example, it's all melody. Um, and we've gotten away from that now, the kind of the, the, you know, this this decade has developed where um, directors and studios want to hear uh, more atmospheric sounds uh, than, than melodic lines. And I do miss the melody, but, um, uh, you know, even for Beauty and the Beast, you'll notice the cues, um, you know, are definitely melodic. And Alan writes very, but, you know, he's one of the best melodists of any century, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, they, they were asked to do you know, less melodic stuff. So for Broadway, obviously, you, when you're writing underscore, you really want to bring in the themes as much as you can, um, which you know, sets, sets moments up, harkens back to moments, sets up cues, sets up songs, rather, uh, going into songs, going out of songs. Um, so I think the ability is a huge thing. And of course... Um, just on a pragmatic level, you're writing uh, in the film for 100 players um, and can really bring in, you know, if you hear, um, you know, a, a uh, Wagnerian tuba in this cue, you bring in the Wagnerian tuba. Mm-hmm. Um, if you hear a crumb horn, you bring a crumb horn. You know, whatever you hear, you can have. Whereas on Broadway, um, you know, these days it's, the orchestras have gotten smaller and smaller, as you know. And even when I started in the business, uh, you know, Beating the Beast had 25 players plus conductor, and um, things have gotten smaller. You know, my orchestra for Aladdin is is 18 plus me. So, um, and the and the orchestrators uh, are they're so smart, and they're so good, and and they've gotten very very good at making a smaller orchestra sound big. Uh, and impressive and even symphonic when they need to, but um, that's a huge, huge component as well. You know, when you're arranging things for a film, 
you have unlimited resources, and when you're doing it for Broadway, it's it's limited. And in some ways, that's that's not a bad thing because you know it makes you think harder okay. as to what you need and and what suits the moment. Uh, and they each have their pluses and minuses, but uh, you know, that's a big component as to as to what's different. Now, is there a score that you, every time you get to, are like, oh, God, this score is a beast. And it's not even that it's bad. It's not even that it's just crazy. But there's just so much intricacy to it. Um, can you rephrase that so that that uh, a score, you talk about a Broadway score now? Uh, well, I guess, yeah, I guess, yes, yeah. Because I've had my fair share of scores that, like, I love to play, but every time somebody gives them to me, it's like, all right, we've got to restudy because it's one of those scores that it has to be in your fingers from the day of rehearsal. Okay, so here's an interesting thing about me. Um, So you're approaching this from a someone handing you a score to learn and to play and possibly conduct. I have never in my entire career ever worked on anything but a new score. Huh. So, so um, you know, yes, French Woods, back in those days, uh, after that, 1981, I did Summerstock, um, but from, my first show was Dying, um, uh, with Tommy Two in 1982, and from then to the present day, I have never, ever, ever worked with anything that wasn't, that wasn't new. Um, the closest I ever came to it was Little Shop, which had been off Broadway, of course. Um, so, uh, um, but, uh, you know, what interests me is, um, not being given someone else's score to recreate, but to, the, what's, what's interesting for me is not just music direction or something that exists, but to create arrangements, to create vocal arrangements, to create song arrangements, to create underscore, to interpret, the composer's wishes and to create something new. That's that's what I'm about. I, I I can't approach your question from the standpoint of being handed a score. That's which so is, cool. I'm very 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 lucky to say. That's so cool. So then, when you are getting people to musicians rather to go through a score that's new, what is your advice to them? Because I know there's no reference recordings, essentially, which in this day and age is something that everybody thrives off of. So they can't really take from what's already been done. How do you create that and make that its own entity for something to be frozen? Are, are you talking about orchestra players? Yeah, when or you conduct. I mean, what are you talking about? When you conduct, what do you say to them in terms of, like, here's your score... Let's piece this together to make it something that we can freeze and that you will all be happy with, but still keeping in the confines Lu- of what was written. Right. Luckily, the, you know, I get to work with the best players in the world. You know, I'm in L.A. working with people who can literally read anything the first time, literally anything. And, and in London, you know, same thing. And in New York, you know, the, uh, the best, best, best players in the world. And they don't need to hear a reference recording at that right. level. They have no interest in hearing a reference recording. They're creating something new. So um, really the, what I do when I'm in front of these these masters um, is I describe the moments of them. You know, I will say, uh, um, here's what's going on on screen. 
Uh, here's what we're trying to convey. Um, we're trying to be a little sly here. We're trying to be a little this here. Um, whatever we're doing and give them adjectives. And um, that informs their performance. But in no way do they hear, you know, some mock-up or something of uh, what the orchestrator possibly has put together. They're going to interpret it, and they interpret it fresh, and uh, they'll do that best by my just describing what the moment is. That's so cool. Now, with projects like Beauty and the Beast, um, did you guys shoot book scenes first and then go back and do music? And then how does that work? Because does the orchestra record it from the first day after you guys have what you're going to do in terms of that movie? And then they sing to that. I'm so curious as to how that works. Right. So the first, so these days, and I've been doing it this way since Enchanted, I think. I think we started to do this on Enchanted, but it's definitely the way um, that most films do it these days because it, it keeps you lightest on your feet. Um, and you'll know why I want to explain. So the order you do things in it, these days is, um, you know, I will work with the singers and kind of create arrangements around their strengths um, and find a key for them and find tempos for them and work that till it feels right. Um, and then the arrangement is, you know, written down. I'll write down an arrangement of the song. Um, and then that goes to the orchestrator. And these days for film films, the orchestrator will either hire someone to, or if they can do it themselves, do a really good mock-up of the orchestration. Um, and, you know, in, in 2017, the mock-ups are pretty convincing. They, you know, they're not anywhere near as musical as they're going to be eventually, but they're, they're pretty good. Um, and they give a pretty good education of what they will sound like eventually. And then uh, we go into the studio and the singers sing to that mock-up. Now, the mock-up exists in the digital realm. It is, has been created through MIDI. And because it exists in the digital realm, it is still very malleable. And what I mean is, if we get into the studio and they say, oh, well, the piano just felt like a good key, but I'm really feeling like the moment is heightened here, uh, I'm running around, I think we can go a little bit higher. So it's really just a press of a button, um, and presto, we're half a key higher. Um, and, and perhaps they'll say, well, uh, this suddenly feels a little rushed here. Let's take our time. And I can very, very easily go to the music editor and say, you know, at bars 20 through 24, uh, you know, I think we can expand them a little bit. Let's sit back in the tempo. Let's pull it, pull it down two ticks. Let me conduct it for you and you can plunk it out and then we'll, so basically I'm conducting the orchestra before there's an orchestra. Um, and, and so that keeps us very, very light on our feet and allows us to do things we couldn't necessarily do with a live orchestra. And also then you, you can concentrate a hundred percent on the vocal performance and concentrate the orchestra later. So once we have that, um, they will shoot picture to that. Um, and then, uh, we'll come back in, um, months and months later, even a year later, sometimes, um, and then I will bring in the full orchestra. It has been fully orchestrated. You know, once everybody's happy with it, and take that, that mock-up and, and, and flesh it out and write out the full orchestration for it. Um, and then we'll have these sessions 
with a full orchestra um, with uh, that both underscores the seeds and perhaps goes into the songs and out of the songs and also uh, usually separate sessions um, where we record the orchestra playing the songs. But these days it's all done to a variable click that I'm uh, creating with a music editor that allows me, you know, I have streamers as well, that allows me to conduct the orchestra to the pre-existing uh, vocal tracks. That's awesome. Now, I know with Into the Woods, they did a lot of, and actually Les Mis as well, they did a lot of live singing in the movie, and they kind of pieced it together, if you will. Did that happen in Beauty and the Beast? Um, say it again, you were kind of going in and out. Uh, in, uh, in Into the Woods and in Les Mis, they had a lot of live singing, so they had the, I guess, an in-ear from what I understand. Is that something that happened in Beauty and the Beast at all? Um, yeah, to a certain extent, you know, I, you know, because uh, I, I can't be there for the entire shoot, um, but a lot of other things going on at the same time, and, you know, basically you can't, uh, you know, most of the time nothing's going on <laughs> during these shoots that have to do with music, um, but um, I, uh, there are some things that you hear in the finished product um, that were created um on the uh on the stage and um our uh, great music producer and supervisor matt sullivan was there for all that stuff and oversaw all of that stuff um those performances so uh so yes you know some of the things that you hear um are just more suited you know uh kevin klein uh did did wonderful wonderful work in the studio um but for his you know this this lovely, lovely little kind of uh, um, lullaby-ish tune, um, you know, it was always going to be better on these close-ups of him if he were actually singing right there. He's got a great voice, as you know. Um, and uh, I think most of what you hear in the film was probably a result of live. And, you know, little things here and there were live. I think, I think the bulk of what you're hearing was pre-recorded. Um, you just can control things better. Um, but sometimes, you know, there are things you discover on the stage as you're filming that go against what you pre-recorded, and that's understandable. And, uh, you know, very often you want to try things. So uh, it's always a little bit of a combination. That's so awesome. I'm just so fascinated. I could t- listen to you all day. This is so cool. Um, so now I want to do, I want to shift gears just a tad, and I want our listeners to get to know you. So I have some questions that are a little bit rapid fire, and I would love to get your responses. Okay. What is your favorite color? <laughs> uh, I would say dark gray. How about your favorite candy? Uh, really, really, really good dark chocolate. Yes. Favorite TV show, if you have any time to watch TV. Yeah. Um, I don't watch a lot of TV these days. Um, and basically, I, I, uh, I love Dan Fogelman because I worked with him on Galavant for two seasons. I don't think I can see that, but uh, um, definitely my favorite show to work on and, and to watch as well. Um, oh, that's fun. Um, so. Uh, um, I'll think about that for a while longer, but uh, but Galvin was a, was a big favorite of mine. 
What's your favorite show currently running on Broadway? <laughs> um, uh, I, I have to say Aladdin, you know. Uh, um, <laughs> it's been so much fun to, to work on and, and uh, put up. And, you know, it, it, um, it just brings so much joy to so many people. It's a great, you know, swath of, of the public. Um, uh, I just love when I, when I can be in there conducting, kind of looking back and seeing how much they enjoy being there. And frankly, these days, anything that makes people happy makes me happy. That's so true. Uh, and, that, and, that, and that said, of course, there are a lot of great Broadway shows out there. Um, you know, I think that uh, maybe we were entering, you know, a a little, a little bit of a golden age again. There are some great things going on, obviously. Um, it's a great new things. Um, so, you know, I, I really try to go to as much Broadway as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite like the old days when I saw absolutely everything. You know, when I was a kid, uh, and I mean in my 20s, you know, I would, I would, I saw everything. If something ran for three days, I will have seen it. <laughs> um, not, I don't have quite the amount of time anymore, um, but I will try to see as much as I can. That's awesome. What's your favorite holiday? Um, I guess I guess it sounds silly, but uh, you know, Christmas time is is a is a great is, is a lot of fun, of course. Uh, you know, anything that kind of brings the family together is going to be a favorite of mine. Exactly, me too. How about your favorite season? Summer, spring, winter, or fall? Uh, I think fall. I think autumn. It's gorgeous. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of crisp, crisp, crisp and fresh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, this time of spring can be can be nice as well. But I love the I love the crispness of early autumn. I think that's mm-hmm. a really nice time to be. Now, you travel all over, but this is just a limited question. What is your favorite coast, East Coast or West Coast? Yeah. Um, oh, they both have their advantages. You know, I, I really do enjoy my time in L.A. I, I, I love the people. Um, and, you know, granted, I have, you know, I don't live there. I, I have, there have been years. Um, where I actually had been, and I counted this, in L.A. more than New York, um, <laughs> uh, believe it or not. Um, but uh, So I, I know it pretty well, but um, uh, I do love being out there. I, I really can't say that I have a, a, a favorite uh, place, place to be in the U.S., but uh, I, I do love both New York and L.A. And what is your favorite vacation spot? Um, I, you know, as you age and change and all that, things will develop, but, um, I'm probably anywhere in Italy. I just love, love, love being in Italy. It's just hard to, hard to find a bad deal. And I'm always surprised by what I find and it pretty much has it all in terms of history and culture and food and, and, and the people and the beaches and the water and the islands and um, it just it's just a never-ending source of joy. That's amazing. 
Now, on this show, what we do is the guest that was previous leaves a question for a future guest. And so I have a question from a previous guest that I can't tell you who it is, but I'm going to have them, I'm going to ask their question to you. And then I would love it if you could leave a question for our next guest who I can't tell you who it is, but I would love for you to do it. So the question that was left for you is what is the first record or CD that you remember buying, loving, and playing so much? That's really easy. Um, um, my grandfather, when I got my first stereo, gave me a gift, and it was a piece that he knew that I would love, and it was uh, Nights in the Gardens of Spain on Well Defy Wow. Um, and uh, I, I remember kind of burying uh, um, a hole into it. So... Um, that was when I got my first real stereo, and I remember loving, loving, loving that. Um, that said, um, you know, when I was much younger than that, um, I definitely wore holes into um, a lot of rugby albums, um, and uh, uh, I remember listening to um, uh Mary Poppins, let's say, nonstop. It was brand new, you know, brand new. Um, so I know every, every, every single note of, of those things from the mid sixties. And uh, you know, even to this day, when I am conducting, um, I kind of pinch myself because I realize I'm creating what someone else will sit and listen to like that, like I was when I was a kid, and it's an amazing feeling. And I am probably that person. I just want to let you know that right now. Yeah. It's probably me. Oh, good. <laughs> so I would love it if you could leave a question for our next guest. It can be anything you want it to be. Sure. Uh, what was the first Broadway show that you saw? How did you feel about it and why? Yes. That's so perfect. I cannot thank you enough for being on the show and agreeing to do this and in your busy schedule, and I know it's only getting busier. I appreciate this so much, and if you ever need anything in terms of coffee, I will send you a Starbucks card. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, it's been, my, it's been my great pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, and safe travels and happy journeys and what's next for you. Great. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye.